This is part seven of the thesis that I wrote for my master's degree in Catholic studies, uh, part seven of an expanded version of the thesis that I submitted, and I'm entitling this On Saint Stories and the Self. So we've discussed the thought of several thinkers who have helped us identify the problems in modernity that have disconnected our vision from action. We've been hamstrung by logical positivism and naturalism and things of that sort. Um, ultimately, what can help us recover the self is the re-identification of myth in our world. We've ultimately landed on the mythoi of St. Francis of Assisi. And we're just going to talk a little bit about him to close up, and then we will move into the conclusion. So I wanted to say one kind of last parting thought about St. Francis. We have the issue of hagiography, you know, this issue of how we deal with, we're trying to deal with the real in our world, which again has been somewhat lost because reality has been redefined by the scientia of, the, of natural sciences. But we also want to make sure we understand um, that, that the real is more than just what can be observed, while at the same time balancing that, knowing that there, are, there might be historical facts about St. Francis that are just not correct. They're part of this body of work that is you know, hagiographic, for instance. What do we do about that? Well, there are certainly some issues regarding history and hagiography and the role uh, of how one thinks about things that either did not happen and how they might affect faith um, or how they might affect faith. Um, Newman, of course, <laughs> as a prolific writer, did actually write on this subject. Um, he helps us think about what does history want us to do with these stories, which is obviously a very different kind of uh, responsive claim to history than naturalistic forms of histi historiography um, and sort of this, this natural science sociological approach that some might take to history. Uh, like, I was, like I said, some things aren't historically accurate. Most scholars believe that the account of St. Francis pacifying a hungry wolf that, attacks, that attacked townspeople did not happen in reality for good historical reasons. It likely did not happen. However, um, this is a little different of a claim when we talk about the issue of bilocation. So we might say, well, in history, uh, there have certainly been stories about people bilocating and doing miraculous things. But in the realm of natural sciences, it's simply a fact that it goes against the laws of science that one could bilocate. Therefore, uh, it, it didn't happen. <laughs> so um, one could say this without attempting to call the Franciscans uh, liars, uh, no more than they would call liars those who started the pious mythology regarding a certain U.S. president who did not actually, in fact, chop down a cherry tree. Um, the mythic aspect here is not meant in this way, right? We're not trying to say the truth of the myth of George Washington and a cherry tree is not that he is. That story codes for us um, this idea of honesty, right? So what's true about this story is that it's telling, it, it's indicating to us, it's summarizing uh, what an honest person would do, right? So there's a truth there, but it's a different kind of truth. And I think that's certainly one way to read hagiography. But I also think that, um, as I mentioned last time, that's a, s a simplistic way, and I think ultimately a naturalistic way, of getting behind this issue, right? As we mentioned that Newman said, you know, nobody uh, dies for dogma, 
right? People don't die for pious legends. Um, people don't die for magical thinking from the psychological standpoint of how we might use that term. Rather, people die for the real, um, and ultimately that, that real might be something mythic. So when I mean mythic, I don't mean it in this way that it sort of indicates something that could be true. At the very least, a claim has to still be made on Francis's life. Um, the fact that even if some of these things are hagiography, what is it about that Francis's life that caused these things to at least be believable to some degree, right? So if there is a prudence to be found in St. Francis's life on the basis of his verifiable actions, how, why would we eliminate something like he bilocated, he appeared as a fireball, he had these these things about him that that seem special, that seem outside of the current norms. And of course, that's what makes a miracle a miracle, right? Now, some of these things might be able to be confirmed confirmed in reality on the basis of a charitable reading of reality. For instance, one can go see St. Francis's blood-stained, blood-stained socks, stained with the blood from his stigmata. Now, how one chooses to interpret this fact, right? One can go look at this themselves, Um on the basis of um, these stories, um, has to be looked at um, through this lens of openness, right? One could say, well, there it could have been rust. It could have been some sort of oxidization that's caused these red stains that look like blood. But again, we are left, we are up against this dilemma, this modern problem. Would rust-colored, oxidized red stains have been the vision that caused Francis's action? We don't know. Perhaps we do, actually. It seems prudent here to point out potential loss in writing off myth. Um, perhaps something remains unexamined by wanting to immediately deny the miraculous simply because it's miraculous. Another illustration from, from Newman might be helpful here concerning the ruins of a medieval castle. One does not need all the details, which may have crumbled or have been ransacked or otherwise removed, to understand that there was, in fact, the presence of a medieval castle, indicated by its ruins. It would be excessive to expect that an archaeologist prove the existence of the entire castle by tracking down every brick, carpet, or suit of armor before they were able to say, yes, there was a castle here. So, if the converging probabilities of one's illative sense lead someone to believe that, yes, St. Francis, in the absolute overflow of a love that mirrors something that is otherworldly, then it is not out of the question that something otherworldly took place in his life. Depending on one's worldview, Callicles would agree with Callicles by saying, I am a skeptic, I do not believe in miracles, but after seeing the evidence of St. Francis's visionary life proven by his action, and the converging evidences of these other facts, like he has blood-stained socks, these facts are confirmed in my illative sense, and I will grant this as a possibility. There may very well be a theoretical pattern, to borrow a Newmanian concept, to saying yes to St. Francis's lifestyle as an answer to our modern issues of the workplace, or technology, or interpersonal relationships. It, I mean, it may be truly miraculous to live a life which presents a compelling image that can provide answers to such a thing, right? Even, even providing answers to the problems of our modern age might be a miraculous feat in of itself, much less by locating. Perhaps that's the easy thing to do in our time to bilocate. 
Maybe, maybe solving the issues in our modern world, that's what takes a miracle. The reader should recall what role Francis plays in this work. He is not proof, he is not an apologetic for Catholic religion, Christianity, or mass going, or piety towards the communion of the saints. He is part of the rhetoric which confirms issues in today's world. Issues that anybody listening to this understands are present. So in this way, Francis is real, right? The issue of whether or not miracles happened, that's a side point, that's a side issue. What we know is real is this. There was this guy named Francis who had an actual impact on the world. Part two, there are things going on in our world today that need answers. So perhaps this converging pattern that we see here could be using aspects of St. Francis's life to solve some of these issues that we face today. That's the real. We're trying to avoid here, at least what I'm trying to do here, is avoid a totalitarian epistemic claim. No one is saying that they must become a Franciscan to, be, to understand how these things might line up. But if in attempting to understand the self, we require the use of powerful myth, myth that have been proven to have this kind of uh, reforming effect in the world, the kind of myth that helps us understand others in community, the kind of myth that brings people together in a way that was not thought possible, then perhaps a tentative faith borrowing is necessary. Perhaps no more than when a physicist borrows the knowledge of a chemist. Borrowing the world's knowledge, the knowledge of the cosmos here, might be where we begin. So faith, even the faith in a mythical hero like St. Francis, could be enough to serve as a self-correcting operation. That is, to quote, the drive, the drive of the mind to know that, is, that it is not satisfied when what is known is not true, or not totally true, as in the modern moral order of modernity. That is to say, examining the life of St. Francis might serve as a self-correcting operation. And I'll say this quote again. That self-correcting operation is the drive of the mind to know that it is not satisfied when what is known is not true or not totally true, which is where we find ourselves. Let's conclude then. One can understand why the Cathars came to be in 13th century Roman Catholic France, Italy. Their, cleric, their criticisms were not far off, as we've already discussed, but St. Francis's example of purity is where the answers were found, and found within the lines of a moral order, not one that broke off from others, not one that caused a violence in this way. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy align on this hierarchic ascetic ladder, and the imitation of St. Francis's life for us might help us align our own interest and our own vision and action together. Thinking about Newman again, he would say that an eschatological end is achieved by, quote, using this world well, though it is to pass away, we perfect our nature, not by undoing it, but by adding to it what is more than nature and directing toward higher aims than his own. Now we can see here, uh, Newman is not taking a dominionistic view of the world when he says using this world well, though it is to pass away. No, because his, this parallelism in his thought here is he's comparing the passing awayness of the world to our own nature. We perfect it, 
not by undoing it, but by adding to it what is more than nature. Just like this world in Christian theology, which will pass away, but there will be a new heavens and a new earth, our own selves, we will have this, this, the decay of a fleshly body, but we'll put on a resurrection, a perfected body. As a Franciscan in today's time might say, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. So when we see the converging probabilities here of this, this view that looks towards a beatific vision in Francis and as described here by Newman, perhaps the best way to look at the problems of modernity is not simply to cast our vision at it over and over again, providing critique after think piece, after tweet, <laughs> in our attempt to, to, to awareness campaign away <laughs> the issues in our world today. No, there seems to be something more that we, we must do and work through. Our consistency is important. Consistency sometimes appears inconsistent to those on the outside, for those who have not walked through these ascetic steps. Right? We, we can't question St. Francis's effect, though we might wonder about the causes that led to his sort of supernatural strength. Let's consider one biblical story here. The story of the Roman centurion whose servant was healed in the Gospel of Matthew. The account is found in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. Now, this Roman centurion, uh, he could have converted to the Jewish faith, and perhaps this may have made it easier to understand the role of Christ in his world. But he wasn't. In fact, a parallel account tells him that there is some sort of piety and respect for the Hebrews, but he himself was uninitiated. But despite his lack of subscription to Torah, within his view of the world, it was consistent for him, totally consistent, to ask this miracle-working rabbi to heal his servant. We know this famous quote, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed, the purpose for which he sought out Jesus. Christ's only response to the officer, again, in spite of him being a Gentile who apparently did not have an interest in becoming a Jew, his response was to say, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. Here's why it's consistent. Adding up the probabilities led this Roman soldier to decide that if Christ had authority, and authority means that commands have power, not unlike the command the centurion would have over his troops, then Christ would only need to say the word for it to have an effect. Therefore, the myth of Jesus's miracle working was a powerful enough force to the centurion's illative sense to cause this man to ask for healing, even if all of his Greco-Roman theological commitments would not have aligned with Christ's Judaism. No part of his conscience was left on hold to make room for moralistic platitudes. Sure, he could have asked Zeus or healing from some other god or demigod, of course, right? But it, and there wasn't a contradictory need in his mind to ask Christ the rabbi, this, this Jewish holy teacher from his perspective. But what he was able to do was to make things work enough for himself, to make an A to B move in Taylor's estimation, right? To, to, to make this next step. Now, if we read the, the Christian myth, it is very likely that the centurion may have later had faith in Christ. And ultimately, that might have been an A to C move, or a B, I mean, sorry, a B to C move, or maybe perhaps he had gone further down that road, and that was his move to Z. We don't know. But again, for him to make this move was to take vision and put it into action based on these probabilities that he saw and the things that were clearly evident to him. 
right? It was clearly evident that Jesus's commands, his, his commands to make people well, did have real power. The illative sense, the key inner voice, is what causes conversion towards the recovery of the full self, to act in the knowledge of what is right, as the centurion did. It revivifies something that became lacking for the sake of some other reason. And that reason could have been, perhaps, that centurion's trust in his own home uh, Greek, Grecian gods, for instance. For us, it could be um, the things that help us feel better by following certain social networking sites or certain news channels, or just simply the desire to be in the know, for instance. Often, the deeply, really, truly appealing things are those which happen slowly, those that seem paradoxical, those which are characterized by things that we can't find cost-benefit analyses of, but are really characterized by their aesthetic, their subtlety, their lack of utility even. Like the paintings found in far-off corners in a chapel's chancel, which are only ever seen by a few clerics and also God, <laughs> these retellings of biblical myth, these paintings in rich colors and deep tones, were done simply for the love of it, for the painter to glorify God in that way. And perhaps if somebody were to look up into this dark corner that's away from uh, most uh, lines of sight, it's done for those people too. Something stirred inside an artisan that drew them to draw an Old Testament scene or a parable from the Gospels or some event whose details or which details rose out of their own imagination, like the second coming of Christ. Of course, not every artwork in a cathedral is like this. There are also prominent altarpieces and apse designs, which are seen by all. But these artists know themselves. The self paints and can paint for a whole church, or they can paint for things seen by only them and their creator. How weary it actually is to be crippled by a sense which filters out the there-must-be-more questions, rather than one that allows the illative sense to do its work. A hermeneutic of charity, a wise and gentle minimism, as Newman says, regarding existential questions, may be keys to unlocking the other. This is where the challenge of St. Francis provides those illative critical thresholds and reorienting visions. The things that make thresholds so high are truly worthwhile concerns, such as, will such an ascetic vision actually have answers for our broken world? Yes, they might. <laughs> and Francis might have asked the same things in a truly dark age festering with the complacency of corrupt clerics, the violence of plagues and crusades, and for the saint himself, mental and physical pains which would assault him for the rest of his life. But through his trust and his illative sense, from his first call to rebuild my church to his strained Laudato Si', he found the real. Something not mediated through effervescent technology or through empty startup-style idealism and HR policy, but in a transcendental vision of hierarchic things so far beyond himself that he needed to rededicate his lifestyle to seeking them out. As Newman might say, one must have two eyes towards various new materials, one theological and another philosophical though certainly weighed by and collaborated and collaborating with other various fields. But in terms of a metaphysics, there may be some who have within themselves a pulley in the heart strung towards talk about God or Francis or other devotions like these. Therefore, 
for a real illative honesty to take place, there must be room for saint stories, eucatastrophes, which bring the fantastic, hopeful, and joyful together to bring color back in the recapitulation of heaven and earth. It is hoped that bringing in these elements will help, in fact, Callicles to fully agree with Callicles, to be able to, after having identified problems in our modern world, come to an understanding of possibilities which may be able to provide more compelling answers. The inner illative sense may then demonstrate some truth in some of these particular stories. In another Platonic dialogue, Socrates describes for Phaedrus a similarity that written words or stories have with paintings, in that they are static. Though it seems obvious to bring up, one should realize that looking at an image like the School of Athens is painted from only one perspective. You can't move your head and peer around a pillar or glance down an aisle or hall. Text is static as well, in a way. What has been written has been written. If one has inquiries to make of it, their interrogations are limited to simply rewriting the text or performing some other criticism upon it. Socrates states this, but then points out that this is true only to a degree. Even what was previously written can have some sort of dynamic, living element to it. A text can speak, quote, in the soul of the listener. It can defend itself, and it knows for whom it should speak and for whom it should remain silent. And this is similar to Ratzinger, who states there is, quote, an inner sense, a capacity to recall, so that the one whom it addresses hears its echo from within. He sees, that's it. That's what my nature points to and seeks. One may ask if the stories of St. Francis are still speaking to them 